Welcome to Season 2 of The Good Conversation with Dr John Gillibrand. It's a great pleasure to welcome everybody to the latest edition of The Good Conversation uh, podcast. And it's a great pleasure also to welcome Canon Rachel Mann from the Diocese of Manchester, a parish priest in the Diocese of Manchester, and many other things as well to be our guest uh, today. But before I ask Rachel to introduce herself, here at the Good Conversation podcast, we believe that leaders both in church and wider society, and indeed theologians, should be prepared to ask and answer the most challenging questions. So before we go any further, I do have to ask you, Rachel, are you up for that? Are you happy to take part in the Good Conversation podcast? Absolutely. I, I can't think of uh, any conversation, certainly around things that matter, that uh, that doesn't have challenging questions. So um, I think that this is going to be a great conversation. It's an opportunity to dive into the depths and see what we find. Can I ask you briefly to introduce yourself and to talk a little bit about your current role? Uh, what do you do day by day? And... Um, do you enjoy your job? Gosh, what a question. Um, well, my primary identity is as a priest, John, and I'm currently a parish priest and an area dean in South Manchester. Interestingly, I'm about to leave that role and take on a new role within Manchester Diocese as full-time area dean in the north of the diocese. So. By the time this is broadcast, I, I, I might have a quite different answer about what I enjoy in my role or what I don't like. At the moment, it seems like I spend a lot of time saying goodbye to people and situations. My primary role is as a priest, and at the heart of that is being with people, teaching them to pray, preparing them for their death, helping them to grow ever more into the likeness of Christ and be part of his body and to be formed in community but in addition to being a priest i have a number of other roles which are really important to my sense of self and vocation they're not just things that i do so I, i'm a writer and a poet i've currently written 11 books including um uh, a poetry collection a novel, The Gospel of Eve, about which I, I, I'd be very happy to say more in due course. Uh, books on prayer and devotion, as well as books of theology. Uh, and, and much of my theology, John, comes out of my own sense of self as, as a pilgrim and a journeyer. And so I guess if there are people out there who would say that my main public profile is um, as a very uh, vocal, but I hope generous supporter of LGBT inclusion in the church, I'm also an out and proud trans woman and queer woman as well. Uh, I'm a broadcaster. I've been both a, a panelist and a witness on the moral maze um and on other shows like beyond belief and i i regularly uh, get to broadcast on on radio 2 and radio 4 on matters of poetry and religion 
and I'm I'm a regular contributor to Pause for Thought, which is the the Radio Two equivalent of Thought for the Day. Can you talk a little bit about your first vocation to the priesthood? When when in your life did you first feel called to the priesthood? It's uh, it's quite an interesting one that in that um, I, I it came hot on the heels of my conversion to Christianity. So I'm one of those rare things, a convert to Christianity. I grew up in a broadly Christian home, but I um, gave up on it, not least because I, I felt as a trans person, and I knew from a very young age that I was trans, that there wouldn't be any space for for me in God's economy and God's world. Um, but once I'd gone through transition i transitioned in my very early 20s i was in a place where maybe i was ready to be open to god in new ways and then had a massive conversion experience in when i was 26 and to my shock and surprise that's that's when God seemed to be saying, I'd like you to consider more. I began to feel that itch, that invitation, that encouragement to explore my call to ordained ministry. So I was in my mid to late 20s and it really was a, a, a kind of complete blow the submarine out of the water, if that's you know a, a fair, an appropriate phrase. It really was a kind of everything being thrown up in the air because at that point I was four years into a PhD on the philosophy of language. I'd been um, a teaching fellow at Lancaster University in, in an avowedly secular institution. And both to come to faith and then to be invited to explore vocation was deeply disturbing. Um, in the best sense of the word but it, it yeah my life was changed forever coming to faith let's work back on that one a little what was it that as you say you're working in that very secular environment at Lancaster University what was the thing that was convincing? Was it basically an intellectual thing or something else that, that actually convinced you to uh, make that turn in your life? It wasn't purely intellectual. It wasn't purely emotional. In fact, I mean, I, I think I'm inclined to resist that. But I had a lot of intellectual wrestling to do. I remember I wrote this paper when I was about 25 that was presented to the, I think it was the post-grad seminar in the department on the type token debate in the philosophy of language. And let's be clear here, type token debates, I mean, they're as dull and stale as any debate. And gosh, now, I don't know why I even got involved in it, except that it was me trying to explore this war, this kind of intellectual war in my head uh, around Jesus as God and Jesus as human. And it was a, a proxy 
uh, argument, really. It was me saying, okay, how do we... And I, I won't bore your listeners with the details of the type token debate, but essentially it was about me trying to say, how do you get... How do you relate a particular to a universal? How do you relate the divine to the human caught up in this world? How can you have both? It's an either or, surely. Um, and it felt like a kind of irresolvable paradox. And, and I, I want to say that where I sit now is that I can live with paradox and mystery in a way that was impossible for me as a secular philosopher coming out of a particular sort of formation in the 80s and 90s. But the big, you know, the thing that got me over the line for want of, again, want of a better metaphor. That's what, that I was got, looking, that's what I was looking for. The thing that got me over the line to faith was something that was much more instinctive and earthed and embodied. And it's no surprise to me that I've spent the last, gosh, 25 plus years trying to figure out a theology of the body. But the thing that got over me the line was this, this sense of being drawn to prayer, this ir the irresistibility of it in my very bones. And that what I realized when I came to faith, when I, I mean, I had a massive conversion experience. I mean, I do believe God provides that which we need. And, uh, you know, anybody out there saying that, that, you know, oh, trans people, you know, you're just a bunch of progressives. Let me be clear here. My conversion was as classically evangelical slash charismatic as they come. It oh, really my was a sort oh, of my massive, goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, offering of myself to God on my knees and saying, God, if you are there, then I am yours. And it was an it was an all in thing. And I was going all in, you know, acknowledging that God might judge me for being trans. Mm. Um, might even say I've made a mistake. But that in, in offering of myself, I discovered that God was there. God is pure, unconditional love. But here's the kicker, John. That unconditional love is not a love that simply says, oh, well, it's all all right then. Everything you've ever done is all right. It's the love which challenges us to become so much more than we were, we ever were and that's how i've ended up in a dog collar and how i've ended up in some ways doing things which it's so you know life is so much easier when you're an atheist you know it really is i suspect so <laughs> it's really straightforward so. in one sense in one sense it's very straightforward um god ruins lives in the most wondrous and beautiful way possible imaginable and i say that with a huge level of irony of course indeed indeed but yes yeah, so it's it, it was it was emotion and intellect coming together in the body which led to that conversion i like it i like it now were there people who were influential on that conversion or contact with a particular worshiping community or was it was it all done in an academic study in Lancaster? <laughs> um, I mean, on, on hindsight, you, one sees the connections. As I was living it in real time, you've got to bear in mind. I mean, although I'd got over most of it by this point, my, in my as an undergrad, I, I'd like so many 
philosophy students before me, judge me harsh, judge me hard. I, I'd love the existential philosophers. And it was all a bit, you know, I'm working it out in my own sorry life. You know, that, that, and, was, that was where I started back in the 70s. So I, I cannot judge you because... <laughs> <laughs> that's you know, and that that you know and all of that stuff i mean you know whether it's kierkegaard or jaspers or sartre or whoever merleau ponty i mean you know this this wrestling that was I, as i lived it in real time that it felt very individual on reflection what i can see are some huge key influences on my life I mean, the very fact that I grew up in a a gentle Anglicanism, in a, just, I grew up in a little village, which, I mean, happened to have in residence the Bishop of Worcester. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it, but it was creamy old England, you know, it really was. But and, and, and the Church of England was just the background hum. And I'm grateful for that and, you know, going to a Church of England primary school and, and being introduced to the little village church as a small child. And that matters to me, that sense of ritual abiding, but in an unforced way. It does matter. But then there were individuals along the route and, and a very key person to me and, and we remain friends was the, the the head of my sixth form when I was at school who also taught me initially at A-level uh, religious studies that then turned into a philosophy A-level and Dave's gone on to be ordained himself and he represented for me as a teenager at a time when I was really struggling with my identity and rejecting religion he represented the best of the anglican tradition he was someone who was deeply thoughtful who was very serious about philosophy and asking questions and going deep into stuff but had a a very humane christianity I mean, and I think if if you got him and me in the same room, you discover that we belong to quite different brands of Christianity in some ways. I mean, I, Dave comes out of that non-realist sea of faith school of uh, Anglicanism, the Don Cupid uh, world. And I'm really quite realist, you know, if, if insofar as we have those terms. I mean, when I, you know, I, I've had that encounter with the terrifying define that I suppose in its maturest form is is a deep mysticism. And I have, a, you know, a, a mystical faith constantly seeking understanding. But I can only see now that Dave's generous Anglicanism was massive for me to enter that space. I remember when we were 16, when I was 16, and uh, we watched The Mission, mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the film with Jeremy Irons, Robert De Niro, about Jesuit missionaries, and talking about liberation theology. And gosh, it was, it was massive. You know, this, this thing that 
made me realise that theology could be richer than simply being about a, a kind of heavy uh, conformist middle class faith that it had political riches within it and then you know there were significant figures I mean whether they be Robert Runsey Archbishop of Canterbury or David Jenkins the Bishop of Durham in their differing ways they made me realize that you could be in the Church of England and have a, a mind and be critical that's what I wanted to ask next. You you use that very, very famous uh, uh, phrase, uh, faith-seeking understanding. Is the Church of England concerned about maintaining its intellectual credibility? And does that matter? Gosh, I mean, you're asking a... A, <laughs> a, a deliberately challenging question. Well, it's, not, it's one of those questions that, that I, I can see breaking down into countless different different differing ways that would paralyze my thoughts so uh, to, here's two different answers that hopefully meet somewhere in the middle at the surface level right here right now i would say that the church of england is in a place of presenting anxiety of anxiety about numbers and money and about its credibility in society. We're meant to be the church for all, the church for all of England, yet we're, we, we carry with us, rightly in my view, condemnation for our complicity in covering up child sexual abuse, our institutional racism. And this has left us in a situation this this sense of being in the shrinking church has generated i think at times a shrillness that means that we have to readily sought after the language of management or the language of leadership the language of the secular and, and there are times when it can feel yeah on those difficult days as if the church of england has lost its confidence and a church that's lost its confidence finds it very difficult i think to be confident about anything but least of all it's it's intellectual riches um it tends to be route one i mean i'm, I'm now in danger of using football <laughs> metaphors which is always a bad sign john um but you know it, it runs not the risk at all, of being not at all. <laughs> route one rather than having ticky tacker or whatever the um uh you know total football which was my generation of sophisticated football so that's one picture and there's, there's that's a truth bearing picture but I also think that's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit skew with as well at times. I, I'm a member of the Faith and Order Commission, which is the Church of England's uh, theological um, advisory body for the House of Bishops. It's the nearest we have to a doctrine commission these days. And the 16 members of that theological commission represent a really rich cross-section of theological acuity in the church of england and there are people who sit on that who frankly 
they don't need to sit on that body to add to their credibility. These, you know, there are, there are, I mean, just some extraordinary brains I have the privilege of being in the company of. And I won't name, you know, if people want to know who's on the, the Faith and Order Commission, look it up online. But there's some extraordinary people. And this commission does its work and it keeps at it and it keeps asking the questions and it keeps saying to the House of Bishops, it keeps saying to Synod, General Synod, and I think it keeps saying to the wider church, take theology seriously and let's not readily resolve everything into a, into a, a half-baked report. Let's acknowledge complexity. There are some extraordinary people who continue to offer themselves for ordained ministry in the Church of England. And I've had the great privilege of mentoring some of them, uh, being friends with some of them, walking alongside some of them. If what you're asking, though, John, is this. Could the Church of England again produce another David Jenkins? Who, let's be clear, was a, a supremely impressive in his own way, theological brain. Could it produce another Rowan Williams? Let's be clear, Rowan is, is a product of the church in Wales, really, in so many ways. Um, God, God bless the church in Wales, God I say. God bless the church in Wales. Every, every day when I wake, I say, God bless the church in Wales. I mean, so could it, could it produce figures of that uh, impressive stature and place them in Episcopal leadership. Could it? Possibly just about. But I'm not sure it's that likely. Now, a common refrain of some of my friends who, again, for the sake of their <laughs> dignity and protection, some serious theological brains have been saying, that there is a distinct lack of theological credibility at the top of the Church of England at the present time. Uh, I'm, you know, there are a lack of theologians in the House of Bishops. And I always want to say, what kind of theology are you talking about? Because I, I've met some decent, really able theologians who are in the House of Bishops and in the College of Bishops, really impressive. But what's really clear, John, is at the moment, to me at least, the Church of England doesn't have the confidence to say, let us put in as a, as a diocesan bishop a theologian who is going to ask the most searing, searching questions dare to go to the place of to use that lovely greek word aporia you know those places of knotty complexity because it's all a we're, we're in a very particular kind of missionary mo mode at the moment i said missionary position but your listeners might misunderstand me um but we're in a particular missionary mode at the moment and i can't see see us being bold enough to really 
really place those theologians whom we might actually need but don't necessarily want in the places of authority that they perhaps ought to be because of the challenge they would present in that uh, situation yeah yes. in the challenge they present but also just the challenges facing the institution the the institution is hemorrhaging numbers and money and and that's real stuff and let's not act and this is the thing this is where maybe maybe the maybe i'm i'm less of a theologian than some people think i am but this is where i want to give some pushback sometimes to the critics of the church church, church of england is when a diocese when a church when an institution is facing a situation where people are are not coming to church or the money isn't there we should be what we should be asking what is that saying to us that's actually a theological question and i think that actually justin welby stephen cottrell neither of whom are academic theologians neither of whom would we would perhaps say are public theologians are trying to wrestle seriously with that theological question and that all of the stuff that's being generated around vision, which can look like, you know, I, I did someone call the the, 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 the most recent um, sketch of the 10 year plan, you know, it looked like the Death Star, you know, I mean, it's just, it looks really messy on paper. And, it, and, and but this is, I think, an attempt at doing a kind of contextual theology it might not be at times the kind of theology I'm comfortable with or you're comfortable with or many priests comfortable with. But, it, it, you know, J Justin himself says, you know, look at a budget. And he says that's a theology in numbers. Now, we might disagree. You might disagree with that. A, theolo a, a systematic theologian might disagree with that. It's reading the signs of the times, isn't it? Actually yes. seeing what's around us. I have to say that I did like the moment uh, a few moments ago when we were at the intersection of theology and Star Wars, which uh, brought together two of my uh, great passions in life. And uh, I must also acknowledge that it's great to see somebody who is about to be a full-time area dean uh, expressing some reservations about managerial thinking, acknowledging complexity and using the word uh, aporia. I mean, look, but don't actually, for me, it, it's a token of encouragement that someone like me, who's not uncomfortable, is quite comfortable in the realm of classical theology and philosophy, um, who's also a creative maker, um, someone who's always looking to make connections, is it, it has been selected and god willing will be licensed as one of these new full-time area deans it's a reminder that so much of what's going on with our pictures of these sorts of roles um is framed through a, a fear of 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 what's emerging because for me, I mean, you know, I, 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 this isn't meant to be a conversation about being a full-time area dean, 
But as I rate, read that sort of role, what I'm reading is this is this is about animation and creativity and bringing people together, and and management. Gosh, yes, you know when we get it all locked into management theory, you know from the what the Harvard Business School. Yes, that can feel stultifying and unchristian, but I'm utterly unconvinced by anyone who tells me that management doesn't have some sort of place in the life of the church and of ministry and of our sort of theological searchings as well. Um, you know, that's like, um, you know, to use a perhaps a, a, a sort of half-baked analogy, I've never forgotten a friend of mine saying to me many years ago, priest of many years standing, he said, Rachel, never forget that admin is a pastoral matter. Mm, and absolutely. what he meant was, you know, that dealing with stuff, being organised, managing your own time, managing your relationships with others, sometimes managing other people's relationships, has these pastoral, human and dare I say it, divine dimensions that it draws us into our theological reflections as well. But, you know, being an area dean, gosh, why shouldn't it be about being a practical theologian as well? You're, you're inspiring me to do an entire series of the Good Conversation podcast dedicated to interviewing uh, full-time and other area deans throughout the Anglican communion. It's a, it would be an interesting story. It would be an interesting <laughs> story. Now, you've, you've talked about being a trans woman um, and look at, looking at the Church of England again today, What's it like being a trans woman who is also a priest within the Church of England? Gosh, uh, it, as with so many things, when one doesn't belong to the normative group, when you are other, uh, it's complex. I have to say, and I say this with hand on heart, that because in my experience, most people, both in the church and beyond, are suckers for love and friendship and relationship and growing together. Because of that, most of the time my life is no more difficult, no more complex, no more messy than anyone else's. And whilst there are always caveats caveats on this sort of stuff i do want to say by way of encouragement to trans siblings out there that though the church often does get it horribly wrong and, and certain traditions of the church can be crushing places for the most part the church of england in its parishes and in its local churches. It's a place that just wants to love people, you know, and wants to to love and affirm people. Does that mean that there's the possibility that we might one day see a Church of England or indeed a wider Anglican or indeed a wider Anglican communion where transphobia no longer exists? Well, Gosh, I mean, just as we all hope for the Perusia, you know, or Indeed. anticipate <laughs> it, um, that, that, you know, n never put limits on what, what God can do. 
and what we can do in partnership with the living God. What I think we have to acknowledge is there's a long way to go. Um, just to give you a very, very simple example. Recently, uh, recently in terms of as when we're speaking and recording, I led the Church of England's national online service. And it was a great privilege to do that with a whole bunch of people at St. Nick's, Burnage, where I currently am. And the overwhelming response to that service was positive. But there were quite a lot, more than anyone would have liked, transphobic remarks about the service. And let's be, and I want to be clear here, John, what I say in the service is what, you know, pretty much in the, what I would call the broad middle of Anglican theology. It was Good Shepherd Sunday. I wasn't looking to, um, you know, scare any sheep. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, I wasn't looking to worry there, any sheep. That's there's, the there's, there's Sundays like that for all of us, but not that Sunday. Yeah, yeah no, I wasn't looking to worry any sheep. I wasn't look, looking to be the wolf at the door or whatever the, 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 the metaphor is. But still, there are people who just because I am who I am and I refuse to apologise about who I am and actually I think that who I am is called in God, I am who I am in God want to be vile and so there are tough times and where where that can become really challenging john is in terms of how does one address transphobia that emerges within the church now you know I, it's, it's not it's not going to happen where i am at saint nick's that's just not going to happen um but in terms of the wider whether it's the diocese level or the national level in terms of the anglican communion what how does one address that and, and and what we discover what i've discovered is that the price of being trans and it's the price of of being different from the norm is that you can't escape the double bind and the double bind is this if you choose to brush it off so somebody says something or there's a blog post that goes on about trans people or there's something that emerges that says you know trans people aren't real and all of that it's it one route to take is i'm going to ignore it i'm just mm -hmm. going to brush it off brush it away if you do that if i do that and i you know it's often my default reaction there's still a price to pay it's not that oh everything's fine and dandy if you say something, if you call out the transphobia in the church or in wider society, that there's a price to pay for that too, that you get seen as shouty or strident or, oh, you, she's a troublemaker, he's a troublemaker, they're a troublemaker. Why can't they just be like everyone else and just get on with it? Why do they always have to be drawing attention to the transphobia? Uh, the point of saying all this, John, is this, that when you are other, when you are different from the norm, and that this applies to women, whether they be cis or trans, to uh, global majority people, black, brown people, um, disabled people, um, 
those living with complex mental health anyone who's different if you if you put up and shut up there are wounds if you say something there will be wounds there's no way and, out there's and no, there's way no out. easy way out there's no easy way out there's yeah. no easy way out i mean the way and this is why solidarity matters you know that sort of sense of it solidarity across communities and within the community and finding that we bear each other's wounds that we somehow find a dignity in tending each other's wounds that we begin to find the route through beyond the wounds so that what we have are scars and that maybe we speak out of our scars rather than out of our wounds um and there's some as you can all of that is very bodily imagery and that won't surprise you therefore that it gives you a hint into why i'm so interested in in bodies the body and bodily theology um the way in which the body of christ as this community which is both wound bearing but is also a risen body um dynamically interrelates to particular bodies particularly those bodies which are seen as other bodies as not quite um and i put this in very much in inverted commas normal bodies hmm. just to conclude this section with a quick question that kind of sums this up you and i both believe in a radically inclusive church uh, an unconditionally inclusive church i think that would be uh, a, a, a way that i could put it on which we both agree how do you cope with the idea that there are congregations and individuals just briefly how do you cope with the idea that there are congregations and individuals within this church who aren't like that on a day-to-day -day basis i guess i don't think about it very much i mean i just neither neither do i neither do i just I. Get on, i mean i try and get on with loving people where i where i am and and i hopefully in some measure allowing them to love me in terms of trying to build the conversation i'm aware always aware that those seemingly radically exclusive communities, congregations and persons are often much more complex than they first appear. And I, I do seek after that, those peaceable conversations where I can. And it usually comes down to a conversation with an individual rather than with a community en masse. Because, you know, it's trying to speak to a, a, any block any group of people is challenging often because of groupthink as well you know we all fall into it whether we're progressives or conservatives so yeah day to day i just get try and get on with my life but in terms of a wider strategy to try and find those conversations with people who are people of parts because most of us are actually so um you said at the beginning you, you've uh, written a number of books um uh, 
a very full bibliography indeed. It's a it's quite a long list. Um, now, could I ask you to choose two of those books? I'm going to encourage one of those to be the novel that you've recently published and one other, yeah? And just talk about them. Uh, let, let's, start with the, let, let's start with the novel. Available in all good bookshops. As, as they say, in, and indeed. Yeah, so the novel is called The Gospel of Eve. It's set in the 1990s in shock horror. Uh, an Anglican seminary or theological college just outside of Oxford, not to be confused with any actual theological colleges. I, I, I have been to an Anglican theological college just outside of Oxford. I, I've lived this. I've lived this. Yes. Um, so that's its setting. And it focuses on a group of ordinance trainee priests who are obsessed with the Middle Ages and the medieval. And this obsession, John, leads them to get overly fixated on two things. One, dangerous, perhaps lost manuscripts that maybe should have been lost. And secondly, on ways of praying that perhaps would be best not to be pursued and at its heart is the relationship between two women the central character kitty who's offering her confession 20 years on from the events of the theological college in and uh, evie who as we discover in the opening sentence dies in mysteriously at the theological college and so it is, now this all sounds probably terribly cerebral, John, but it's essentially, it's a page turner. And I'm, you know, I have no apologies for this. I love thrillers. I love whodunits. And it, it's a gothic thriller. It's been described by um, one of the uh, commandees as um, a combination of, Donna Tartt's The Secret History and Umberto Echo's The Name of the Rose. So I hope that tempts people to have a closer look. Essentially, it's about obsession and desire. And what happens when faith goes from faith-seeking understanding into faith-seeking a very dark God indeed? Oh. Now, so that's the novel. That's, that's the, novel, the novel, the second book. Oh, gosh, what else should I talk Let, about? Let's just name the novel again before it's, we go uh, on. It's The Gospel of Eve, published by Darton, Longman and Todd, available in hardback, in um, Kindle, and also in audiobook. And I, I read the audiobook, which is a lot of fun to uh, put together and do all the different voices. So the other book now, <laughs> the other book, that, the that's other... The, that's the only novel you've written. So the other the other book out oh, of your the other book, which I mean, one so, of the, all the others? It's so hard to choose. I'm actually I'm going to choose the most recent theology book, um, partly because it's it's received perhaps the least attention because it came out a month 
before the Gospel of Eve. And the Gospel of Eve garnered quite a lot of attention. Indeed. You know, the, you know, the things in the tablet, the telegraph, um, radio. Um, this other book I'm incredibly proud of is called Love's Mysteries. Love's Mysteries. Um, and it's a book about grief, precariousness, the body and God. It's a tiny little book, John. It's only 140 pages. And it's my attempt, I suppose, I call it the, the third book in a trilogy of books. The first one being Dazzling Darkness. I'm now talking about all my books. Dazzling Darkness, which was... You're now going to list them all. <laughs> my first, no, the first book was the, the, in the trilogy mm. was Dazzling Darkness, which was very personal and about Indeed. my uh, sort of journey, really, as a trans woman and as a, a disabled person um, and serially ill person. The second book was Fierce Imaginings, which was about the First World War, but which is much more about family. So if you think of it this way, the first book was individual. The second book was about family. This third book, Love's Mysteries, is about the community, the body in community. And in each chapter, I look at some element of community life that we often struggle to talk about. So to give you an example, the very first chapter is called Who is Worthy of Grief? And it explores the aftermath, the theological aftermath of the Manchester Arena bombings in, gosh, it was in 2017 now, was it? Or 2018? It's time hmm. moves. And it explores how the lines of grief are drawn. Why is it that some people are seen as worthy of grief? and others not and it's about the it's about the value of bodies and so it runs through looking at the body in public space it looks at the body in terms of our, our private in terms of love in terms of our intimate relationships there's a chapter on grieving over the the death of of parishioners from the point of view of a, a a, a priest and and it finishes off with the chapter i never thought i'd write or never anticipated i'd write about the pandemic and about what it means to be a body living with the precariousness of the times we now live in and it's a book which i'm really proud of um it's the sort sort of book that Probably in 10 years time, if people ever do talk about any books that I've written, it's the one they won't talk about. <laughs> but it's the one which privately, I think, has got some of my very best things in it. Because it's me trying to make sense of what it is to be in a, in a very precarious time in the world as a Christian community as a political community, as a human community, but also to introduce people to some of the, I suppose, the big philosophical and theological theories, that theoretical works that matter to me in a really accessible way. Um, so, yeah, I'm very proud of Love's Mysteries. It's published by Canterbury Press. Full title, Love's Mysteries, The Body, Grief, 
precariousness and God. And I recommend all those listening to the Good Conversation podcast to order your copy today, if at all possible. Now, we're just going to finish off with something that happens in all the uh, Good Conversation podcasts, which is the quick fire questions. What's your favourite novel? Middlemarch. What's your favourite non-fiction book? The Rites of Spring by Modris Ecksteins. What's your favourite TV programme? At, at the moment, Line of Duty. So say we all. <laughs> so fa- that's your favourite TV programme. What's your favourite movie ever? Um, Sound of Music. Fa- favourite kind of music? Oh, it changes. Um, progressive music, prog. Favourite musician? Um, I'm not sure I can even begin to answer that. Let's just say, I, just because he was just so innovative, even though I don't listen to him now very much, Jimi Hendrix. Favourite drink, wine or beer or spirits or... I, I, if, juice. if I could drink, it would be it would be red wine, but I'm banned, unfortunately. My liver's giving out, so I can't drink but, at all. But it would be red wine. Yeah. Um, sweets or chocolate? Uh, sweets. Favourite food? Oh, gosh, curry. Even though I'm not really allowed it anymore, but I love curry. Yes. So, but but you will admit to the occasional curry. I yeah yeah. I mean, although I haven't, you know, it's it must be at least six months since I last dare try one. Now I've seen. I've never been in uh, your church in Burnage, but it's absolutely spectacular, isn't it? Would that absolutely. be a fair comment? So let's finish with favourite church building of all the. If there was one place. Apart, apart from your own parish church at the moment. Absolutely. Where would you want to be and say, it's good, Lord, that we're here? Although I haven't been in it for a very, very, very long time now, and although it's not the most impressive place, um, I'm going to be naughty, split the difference. Could Worcester Cathedral, if we're looking at a sort of home cathedral, because I grew up near Worcestershire, but... Intriguingly, I think the little village church where I grew up, that would mean so much to me to be there. Which actually makes it great architecture in a way. Yes. And final one, favourite painting or work of art? Oh, gosh, now that does change all the time. A work of art I've been loving recently is The Silence by Carol Waite, painted in 1965. Extraordinary piece of work, John. Um, uh, Just look it up online. Uh, It's available on the Royal Academy website. uh, And it almost models everything we've come to expect in the age of social distancing and the two meter rule. Um, it's essentially a painting of three figures in a London suburban garden, each spaced about two meters apart, 
middle-aged man, an old woman and a young boy and they're looking off into the distance. They don't look at one another. And what Waite did was he painted those three individuals separately, listening to, uh, sorry, not listening to, uh, uh, keeping the two-minute silence on Remembrance Sunday. And then he took those three figures and put them in, in his garden. It's really disconcerting. But it's also really powerful about how people can be together and yet not connecting. And of course, as was the case with these three figures, participating in a ritual, yet being caught up in themselves, but also invisibly connected. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to have this opportunity of interviewing you for the Good Conversation podcast. And thank you ever so much for your uh, time and uh, these very interesting uh, answers uh, that you've given. There are no easy answers to anything. There are no easy answers to anything, but uh, that's been a really good conversation. I'm just going to ask you briefly again one more question. Looking to the future, say in about 20 years' time, looking at the church, looking at the wider world. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Are you filled with hope or filled with concern? Oh, or both? Well, John, don't even get me going on the difference between optimism and, and hope. I, I'm not an optimist, but I am filled with hope. I'm always filled with hope because I'm absolutely convinced that God is always going ahead of us. God is is ahead of us and in the midst of us and behind us. And though we stumble and we are so readily lost and, and become so bewildered so easily, we get in the way of God so easily. You can't keep a good God down. You really can't. The hope is shaped in my sense that as a, as a species, we are ultimately, to use a phrase I used earlier, suckers for love. We're suckers for hope and we're suckers for truth. And that means that in our fumblings, we will find a way to begin to address what will be the defining, what is the defining uh, issue in our, our world. And that is the, the, the environmental crisis that we are caught up in, which is itself a crisis of justice and of inclusion and of, of economic equity and exclusion. We will get there, partly because we have to, but partly because God. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Can I give you the very best wishes of the Good Conversation podcast as you look forward to your new duties? And again, thank you for your time and this fascinating discussion. Thank you very much indeed, Rachel. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to Good Conversation with the Reverend Dr. John Gillibrand. This podcast was produced by Phil John with music by Dan Greensmith.